You're listening to the news on RTHK. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Friday the 28th of October. This is Peter Lewis with the business and finance headlines. The U.S. economy performed better than expected in the third quarter, returning to growth after two quarters of decline. GDP increased 2.6% on an annualised basis between July and September, compared with economists' expectations of a rise of 2.4%. That marked a sharp reversal from the 0.6% drop in the second quarter of 2022 and the 1.6% decline registered in the first three months of the year. The European Central Bank has raised interest rates by 75 basis points, pushing its deposit rate to 1.5%, the highest level since 2009. In a statement after the meeting, it cited substantial progress in withdrawing monetary policy accommodation, but said inflation remains far too high and will stay above the targets for an extended period. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority's chief executive, Eddie Yu, said yesterday it's crucial for Hong Kong to have a clear roadmap towards normality and not to revert to tighter anti-epidemic measures in order to strengthen overseas confidence in the city. Mr Yu said he had learnt that many financial workers had returned to the city since the government replaced hotel quarantine with three days of medical surveillance for inbound travellers. Mr Yu said the fact that the territory didn't tighten its anti-Covid policy in spite of a recent rebound in infections has helped to attract talent. He said he hopes to convey a message to the world that Hong Kong is back by hosting hosting the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit on November the 2nd and 3rd, which will be attended by around 200 executives from different sectors around the world. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris of Econosis Advisory and Carlos Casanova at UBP. With a view from Singapore is Mitchell Katesha from TD Securities. Money U.S. stocks and Treasury bond yields dropped following the better-than-expected GDP data and also weak earnings reports. The S&P 500 closed down 0.6%, ending the session at 3,807. The Dow rallied for a fifth straight day, adding 194 points, or 0.6%, to end at 32,033, boosted by an 8% jump for Caterpillar after its strong earnings. But the Nasdaq Composite tumbled 1.6%, closing at 10,793, hit by weakness in the tech sector. Shares in Facebook owner Meta plunged almost 25% to the lowest level since 2016, wiping out almost 90 billion US dollars in market value after it reported another quarter of declining revenues. Several other big tech groups, including Alphabet and Microsoft, have warned this week that an economic slowdown was hitting their advertising businesses and revenues. More than 550 billion US dollars has been wiped off the value of the biggest US tech companies this week. And the pain for the tech sector continued after the closing bell. Shares of Amazon tumbled 13% in after-hours trading after issuing a downbeat revenue forecast for the rest of the year, citing the poor macroeconomic environment. 
Shares of Apple were unchanged following the closing bell after reporting an 8% rise in revenues to $90.1 billion. But the tech giant's iPhone sales missed estimates while it saw slowing growth in services revenues. In Europe, the Stock 600 index ended the day almost unchanged, but shares of Credit Suisse tumbled by a record 19% after it reported a 4 billion Swiss franc loss for the third quarter. That's about 4 billion US dollars as well. The bank said it would seek to raise 4 billion Swiss francs of capital, including 1.5 billion from the Saudi National Bank, cut 9,000 jobs and carve out the investment bank. The UK's FTSE 100 rose a quarter of a percent. Shares of energy giant Shell rose 5.5% in London after it reported profits of 9.5 billion US dollars in the second quarter, its second highest quarterly profit on record. However, it won't have to pay the UK's windfall tax on energy firms because this company said it had made no profit there due to large investments in the UK. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng rallied for a second day following five days of declines. By the end of trading, the Hang Seng was up 110 points, or 0.7%, at 15,438, giving up gains of 3.4% from earlier in the day. It's down 4.8% for the week and over 34% for 2022 so far, making it the world's worst-performing major market. The tech index, which was up 4.7% at one stage, closed 1.1% firmer, but it's still down over 47% year to date. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite fell two-thirds of a percent to 2,983, leaving it down 18% for the year. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 0.7% lower at $95.04 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,663 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell 8 basis points to 3.93%. And the US dollar rebounded. The euro this morning at 99.5 cents. The Japanese yen is trading at 146 and a quarter against the dollar. Sterling fell half a percent uh, to $1.15 and three quarter cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and eight cents. And there was further volatility in the Chinese currency on Thursday. Offshore Chinese yuan weakened against the dollar after a sharp appreciation the day before. Offshore yuan lost one percent to trade down to 7.25. The previous day, it jumped 1.8%, the biggest daily rise on record. And around Asia-Pacific stock markets uh, this morning, looking quite weak at the open, the SX200 in Australia off half a percent, the Nikkei 225 in Japan down one and a quarter percent, the Cosby has fallen 0.2% shortly after the open, and futures markets pointing to a loss of another 30 points for the Hang Seng this morning at the open. It's 8.10, it's a Friday morning, it means to say good morning, we get to say good morning to Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning, Peter. And also with us this morning, Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at Union Boncare Privé. Welcome back, Carlos. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me. Let's take a look at the U.S. economy. Performed better than expected in the third quarter. It's returned to growth now after two quarters of decline, although the U.S. government insists that's not a recession. GDP increased 2.6% on an annualised basis between July and September. Better than economists' expectations, who were predicting 2.4%. 
And that marked a sharp reversal from the 0.6% drop in the second quarter and the 1.6% decline in the first three months of the year. A surge in exports helped drive the growth, but the strong headline figure did mask some underlying weakness in the economy. Growth in consumer spending slowed to 1.4% in the last three months compared to two percent in the previous quarter andrew and carlos what what do you think is the soft landing still on in the u.s in in pure terms of uh, gdp it looks all right now what i'm uh, much more obsessed is given that the fed is inflation 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 the cpi inflation i know that's not the one that the fed is supposed to look they much prefer the pce okay the cpi inflation is stuck at eight percent absolutely you know, I was looking at my Bloomberg figures this morning, and I thought, I'm looking at the wrong numbers, because there seems to be <laughs> a flat line there. All right. And, um, well, you know, uh, the rest of the figures might be or might not be all right, or might not or may not be a real recession, but inflation stays there and means the Fed, at least in my reckoning, uh, hits us twice more with a 75er. So two more 75 yeah. rate rises, which is not what the bond markets are saying at the moment. They seem to be getting more convinced uh, that central banks, including the Fed, are going to back off from more aggressive easing. Well, unless and if the inflation comes down and stays down and the trend is down and the components are down. And there seems to be, simply looking at the numbers, there seems to be no, no sign of that. Mm. What do you think, Carlos? Um, I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian here. Um, Good, please do. <laughs> If we look at the report, we see that most of the upside is coming from the external sector with exports uh, rebounding quite significantly. Um, On the consumption front, there was a recovery, but um, if you look at the distribution of this recovery, services were up 2.8% and goods were down minus 1.2% with the housing sector also dragging an overall activity. So my, my, my take is that the economy is benefiting from some tailwinds in Q3 that will likely continue into Q4. For example, the decline in commodity and energy prices is definitely going to help the U.S. economy in the next uh, couple of months. Um, but the the market is focusing too much on the underlying weakness in consumption and not focusing enough on the fact that um, the Fed hasn't yet pivoted its language in terms of growth. Um, so in my opinion, um, what we are seeing in bond markets and equity markets might not be sustainable in case we have a surprise on the rate front from a more hawkish Fed in November um, and in case um, they don't really pivot the narrative away from inflation quick enough, um, even as we start to see um, the growth narrative weakening in the months ahead. Um, so we, we still have positive GDP growth for this year. We are still expecting around 1.9 to 2% for 2022. But, uh, you know, as the year turns, as we enter 2023, we will see a weakening in momentum and we will still have high inflation and uncertainty around the Fed. Um, so my, my view is that um, the market might, might be a little bit ahead of if itself right now. Carlos, we're not, we're not contrarian here. You know, if, if you're looking rightly that the economy is improving then uh, and inflation is completely flat, then uh, the Fed is going to increase again. Absolutely. Yes, so, and, and, and I would add that there's yeah. the possibility. There's a window of a 100 basis point rate hike in November. So we can't even exclude that possibility at this juncture. Because for one moment, I was very worried that we're disagreeing. God forbid, Carlos, please. <laughs> Never. <laughs> we can't have that, can we? <laughs> what, what about... Um, Unemployment. I mean, most economists are expecting that if we're going to um, hit inflation, then uh, unemployment's got to rise quite uh, materially. Are, are we seeing any signs of that at the moment? We are um, not seeing signs of that at the moment, but remember that um, 
The labor markets in the U.S. are extremely nimble, and so our current scenario assumes that once activity starts to slow into the first half of the year, we might see mass layoffs. Remember that um, you know, labor markets in the U.S. are more flexible than in other parts of the world, and so we, that could happen very quickly, and it's also a lagged indicator. And perhaps also, though, this is this is uh, opposite to what Carlos is saying, but it is really a little bit removed. I mean, I am, I am uh, with Googled eye looking what's happening to the share price. Of Apple, of Amazon, mm. uh, they've halved. Uh, yeah, good grief! I mean, this is and uh, and of Meta. Okay, so these are, these are parts does, of the service sector in inverted And does yeah. that have um, an effect on the economy in the sense that when people, you know, consumers basically look at these share prices, look at their portfolio statements, and see so much wealth wiped out, it starts to affect their spending in other areas. Can that? Does this have an effect on the economy? We better ask Mr. Zuckerberger. Apparently, more or less a year ago, he stood at 140 billion wealth, and now it's down to less than 30. I'm sure this must have affected his consumption. <laughs> and I'm being sarcastic here. Yes, yes, I imagine so. But uh, definitely, when my wife and I looked at it, we said, and so what? And we went back to having a bear sandwich. All right. But it does help if you're a billionaire, though, doesn't <laughs> it? What do you think, Carlos? Does this have an impact on sort of consumer sentiments when you see these big declines in, you know, in popular popular names? Yeah, I think the, they're interrelated, of course. Um, so with um, the decline in valuations comes a decline in, in wealth and with that comes a decline in consumption. But as the economy weakens, and remember there are two things that drive total equity returns, valuations um, and earnings. On the valuations front, we, we are sort of, uh, you know, we don't see enough catalysts for for an upside swing. And on the earnings front, we remain uh, too rosy and potentially with economic activity slowing, there might be downside risk on earnings. Um, so both factors are interrelated and unfortunately we don't see a strong positive trend going forward. Well, it's been a week of surprises on the GDP front as well as that US data. We had earlier this week China's GDP data. That came out better than expected as well at 3.9% um, year on year. So what do you make of that? Or, or is it a sign that maybe uh, the economy is stabilizing and, and maybe improving on the mainland? Um, the GDP was uh, better than expected um, on the surface. I think nobody really... Um, believe that so the market reacted very strongly to well, the nobody <laughs> believed the number or believed that it's as strong as it looks well, that's a whole other conversation um so nobody believed that that um implied a significant recovery in economic mm. activity so in particular consumption was weaker than expected that is supposed to be the main driver of growth in in the in the next leg of china's um, economic journey um, and it remains very weak due to this un unrelentless zero covid campaign uh, in the mainland so um in my opinion we we should be seeing an inflection point it does perhaps um mark a, a bottoming out in terms of the um, growth trend. Remember, China is officially in a recession, and we are defining a recession as a standard deviation from the long-term trend. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we are exiting a recession. We, we should see cyclical upside. Unfortunately, it might not be a surge for China. It might be more of a gradual climb out of the depths of um, zero COVID towards a more normal situation. Um, well, that, but that might, might still take um, at least another two quarters. When you say China's in recession, I mean, statistically, it isn't, is it? But do you mean because there has been this sharp slowdown, it feels like a, a recession to people? 
Correct. So the only sort of two quarters of negative growth that we have are the uh, onset of COVID in 2020 and also the second quarter of this year with a massive lockdown in Shanghai. Um, so typically, um, you know, China doesn't enter um, technical recessions like other developed markets. Technical recessions are defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But um, in the context of China's economy uh, and the need to preserve social stability, we are defining a recession differently. We are defining a recession as a decline in activity below one standard deviation of its long-term average or 10-year average. Uh, and so we are in the midst of a recession and we are seeing an uptick in uh, stress indicators, indicators that point to an increase in social instability um, like the employment rate. Uh, and we are also seeing, you know, a 30% slump in the housing sector. So w we are, you know, by all means, I not in a good position in terms of the economy. Can I take? Uh, the, I completely agree with what Carol is saying. This, this is a fact. This is not opinion. So there's really nothing to disagree. But I want to take a slightly tangential view because I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at the Chinese markets. I'm looking at the markets globally. You know, my clients, the few clients that I have, asking where do I buy, what do I buy, and I'm getting incredibly excited with the notion that very soon that uh, the Chinese domestic tourist sector is going to go through a boom, a huge, immensely important boom, slowly but steadily, because the possibility of the Chinese traveling is now a remote possibility. I don't think there's going to be free travel in China for really the next year to year and a half, purely on the basis of COVID policies and purely on the basis that it might just be easy to leave. And remember, there are no tourist visas being given or no tourist visas in the way they used to be given before. And of course, when the Chinese go back, they have to go straight into quarantine. So staying at home at the tourism section of China should be a very real option. And remember, China can have the same tourist section that the United States has. In other words, the Chinese climate gives you anything from tropical all the way to Arctic uh, mm -hmm. climate sections. And of course, piles and piles of scenic, archaic, uh, uh, monumental, modern, old, historic places for people to go and visit. Wow. So will that benefit Hong Kong? Will we see some of no, those No, of course not. Of course not. 75% of Hong Kong's tourism is Chinese tourism. And mm. this actually, bluntly, even if Hong Kong was to lift completely its uh, travel barriers, Chinese find it, will find it incredibly difficult to travel to Hong Kong mm. on the basis of what happens in China. You know, I've been delving in detail on what happens if you are a single, uh, not a family, or, sorry, not a part of a group, a single uh, Chinese person wishing to come to Hong Kong can tell you it ain't easy and it's even worse when you go back. What do you make of the, uh, the Chinese markets? We've had a bit of a rebound, haven't we, from this slump on Monday uh, when, it fell, when the Hang Seng fell 6.4% over the last couple of days. But it doesn't feel very convincing to me. It, it seems to be struggling uh, to, to make any traction. But at the same time, um, it's left Hong Kong stocks looking extraordinarily uh, cheap. They're trading on an average 40% discount to, uh, to book value. First of all, let me ask you both, what's your assessment of why this has happened? Yeah, so we, we have definitely seen some degree of speculative uh, trading um, with levels, um, you know, piercing through some very critical uh, resistance 
um, levels. For example, at one point we were looking at 2009, uh, you know, for the Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong. Um, some some investors are, are are seeing value in that, and so have mm-hmm. uh, started to re-enter the market. We've also seen support, of course, from the national team. Uh, the support has concentrated predominantly on onshore equities, but we have seen a little bit of that on the offshore as well. And of course, I think there is a sort of long-term structural uh, concern for investors versus a uh, uh, tactical cyclical trade that is also at play here. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, economic activity remains way too low. It's not sustainable. Um, and we are seeing an increase in, 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 in social issues um, and structural fragilities within the Chinese economy. So they need to do something to boost activity. And increasingly, the expectation is that they will very gradually move towards uh, a normalization in terms of the zero COVID policy. Um, if that's the case, we'd be looking at a 2001 sort of scenario. Um, and when we had a little glimpse of that ahead of the uh, lock, uh, well, just after the lockdown in Shanghai, when they reopened that, we saw consumer discretionary hospitality, as Andrew was mentioning, um, and also healthcare stocks uh, recovering quite significantly. So tactically and from a cyclical point of view, this um, recovering in activity, this upward move in earnings um, on onshore on the onshore market um, and uh, sort of reopening story should benefit um, selected sectors within the um, onshore market. More long term, however, we are in a new regime uh, where growth is going to be de-emphasized and um, it's going to be more about quality and technological innovation. So currently there are a few names that weigh significantly on indexes. They were historically high growth companies, but maybe going forward, we're going to have more issues with how the capital is allocated and how returns uh, pan out for investors for the longer term. Andrew, your, well, your more, more, yes, uh, unfortunately, more grim news are going to come. Uh, my, my reaction to to the to the collapse of the both Chinese and Hong Kong markets were very simple: it's politics. Okay, whether we like it or not, whether one is being hypercritical or supercritical, you know, the changes at the top uh, signaled that uh, uh, friendship towards the private sector is uh, has been has been toned down. Now, this really shouldn't affect Hong Kong because what she actually said in his annual report is not that said all this is going to apply, of course to Hong Kong. On the contrary, you know, opening up, uh, more friendly uh, to foreign business, please come, we are, we are getting much, mm. much better and so on. So this will be a little bit unfair. But then, given that China is the main client in inverted commerce of Hong Kong, then whatever happens to my best client is also happens to me. So that is an issue. The other thing that uh, I, it's, for me it's signaling very near in the horizon in November, we're going to have another United Nations climate report. And I think this is going to look, it's going to be reading something out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> uh, you know, what has happened in the last year it yep. is really grim news. And, that, and China is hugely important because it is simply, simply and singly the simple, I'll try that again very slowly, the single biggest polluter in the world. It's okay. not an accusation, it's a fact. Okay. okay, great. Well, thank you both very much. Sadly, we've run out of time there, but that's Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-five on the phone from Singapore is Mitchell Katesha, Head of Emerging Market Strategy at TD Securities. Morning, Mitchell. Good morning. Um, let me ask you, first of all, about central banks. We've had a couple of key meetings this week, the ECB today, the Bank of Canada yesterday. Am I right in sensing that um, central banks seem to be having a little bit of a change of heart about about how they pursue aggressive rate hikes going forward? 
I think that's fair. I mean, what we have seen, and this started back with the RBA hiking only 25 basis points at its meeting, and then we've had uh, the Bank of Canada uh, this week hiking 50 basis points against expectations of a 75 basis point move. And the ECB yesterday, although they hiked as expected by 75 basis points, they did sound somewhat more dovish Mm. in their language and certainly suggest a pivot is on the cards from their perspective. So that was the impression I got as well. It seemed a fairly dovish statement. So I suppose the big question is, does the Fed follow suit? I think that's right. That is the big question. And we had, obviously, last week, a report in the press highlighting the potential for a shift in language from the Fed. Now, our view is that the Fed will hike 75 basis points at its upcoming meeting next month. But we'll moderate the pace of hikes after that to 50 base points in December and then 25 in Jan and March. So the point here is that the Fed does need to start shifting its tone a little bit to kind of get the message through that it's not going to keep on hiking 75. Uh, Now, clearly, there are upside risks to this, but uh, it does seem as if the Fed will be the next central bank to start shifting its tone, which, as we've seen in markets, has been quite positive and help to at least allay some of that negativity from some of the weak tech earnings we've been seeing. And it's having a big impact, of course, in the currency markets. We're seeing um, a number of Asian central banks now actively intervening, aren't we, in the currency markets? The Bank of Japan, uh, the PBOC is getting uh, domestic Chinese banks, commercial banks, to try and support the yuan. Uh, We've seen the Bank of Korea doing it as well. But is it having the other desired effect? Well, the dollar has been particularly strong, as we know, in in the last several months. And uh, if there is a sense of pivot from the Fed, it could undermine the dollar, which would mean that central banks in Asia, including Bank of Japan and uh, the PBOC, will not need to aggressively intervene uh, to sell dollars uh, to prop up their own currencies. Because what will happen is the dollar, by right, from a dovish, more dovish Fed, should start to come under more pressure. So I think that will be very, very crucial for the U.S. dollar. Dollar, obviously, now at multi-year highs, uh, hurting a lot of uh, currencies. And as you mentioned, several, uh, many central banks are having to intervene, running down reserves in the process. That's not something that can continue indefinitely. So I think central banks will be quite happy with a pivot from the Fed if that does happen. And, and they seem to be drawing lines in the sand, don't they, at certain levels? The Bank of Japan... Uh, seems to have targeted um, 150 yen to the dollar. The PBOC seems to want to defend uh, 7.25 yuan. The Philippine Central Bank has spelt out quite specifically it doesn't want to see the peso uh, below 60. Do, do these central banks have the tools and even the reserves to to, to really defend these levels? Um, well, I think in the short term, yes, uh, but uh, not you know, they can't continue to run down reserves in the way that we've been mm. seeing in recent months. Uh, and so, yes, you know, the, this intervention may continue. But again, you know, we start then getting into considerations of reserves adequacy, uh, import cover ratios, debt cover ratios. And clearly that becomes a bit of a risk the more this intervention continues. Uh, so, again, I don't think it's an indefinite, indefinite proposition here. I think this could be just short term. Um, because ultimately it's very difficult to defend levels. Once you have a, a uniformly strong dollar uh, mm. and a hawkish Fed, um, what it means is that the central banks will continue to be on the back foot and their currencies will continue to be under pressure. But as I said, this could reverse if we do see a Fed pivot. And of course, it's, it's not really the best use of central banks' reserves either, is it? 
Not at all. I mean, one of the things that we've seen in, in across Asia is that reserves war chest uh, had built up substantially uh, pre-COVID. And so there had been a healthy level of reserves. But again, it isn't a good policy to pursue, uh, you know, the, the, having healthy amounts of reserves uh, obviously helps your external adequacy ratios. It, it protects your markets and currencies and running these down in the pace that we've just seen in the last 12 months or so uh, is clearly dangerous to continue to do. Okay, Mitchell, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Mitchell Katecha, Head of Emerging Market Strategy at TD Securities. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets, the ASX 200 in Australia off 0.6%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 down about one and a quarter percent. The Cosby in South Korea also sliding down about uh, a quarter percent. And it looks like the Hang Seng now is going to open about 60 points lower in an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Brian Wong. Uh, the weather forecast, fine and dry. Uh, maximum temperature is going to be about 29 degrees. It's going to be fine and dry in the next couple of days as well. 24 degrees right now, 71% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Tom Warden with the half-hour news. Lan Kuifang Group Chairman Alan Zeman has welcomed the easing of COVID measures on bars and restaurants as a breath of fresh air after three difficult years. From Thursday, restaurants can continue to offer dine-in services beyond midnight and bars no need to close at 2 a.m. Mr. Zeman said it meant that nightclubs could operate for longer than three hours a night. But he said real change would come with the dropping of all restrictions. I think that's the one missing link at the moment. I think once we adjust to zero plus three, zero plus three has been a huge game changer, of course. But I think once we get to zero plus zero, it'll make a big difference because tourists are not coming back at the moment because they don't want to be tested. Some are only here for two or three days. They want to be able to go to establishments, the restaurants and bars and clubs. Vladimir Putin has accused the Western world of trying to impose its politics, culture and way of life around the globe. In a major speech, the Russian president said that Western efforts to dominate had caused the war in Ukraine and added that the U.S. and its allies would ultimately have to talk to Moscow. You know, I've always believed in the power of common sense. So I'm convinced that the new centers of the multipolar world order and the West will eventually have to start a conversation on equal terms about our common future. The cost of borrowing in countries using the euro will rise again after the European Central Bank decided to increase interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point. The bank is signaling its determination to tackle inflation. Prices in eurozone countries are five times the target of 2%. The ECB's president, Christine Lagarde, warned a recession was looming in the eurozone. One person has been stabbed to death and five others have been hurt in the Italian city of Milan. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports. 
Local reports say that a 46-year-old man grabbed a knife from a supermarket in a Milan shopping centre before he went on his stabbing spree. A supermarket employee died in the attack. Among those injured was Pablo Mari, a defender with Arsenal on loan to the Italian club Monza. He is said to have suffered a stab wound to the back but does not have life-threatening injuries and is recovering in hospital. The assailant, who is believed to have psychiatric problems, has been arrested. Police have ruled out any terrorist motive. The elected assembly, which runs Northern Ireland, looks set to collapse after the Democratic Unionist Party said it would continue to boycott procedures. The party objects to a post-Brexit trade deal with the European Union, which means some goods have to be checked when they go to and from the British mainland. A last-ditch effort to restart the assembly appears to have failed. Peru, which had one of the highest death rates from COVID in the world, has announced the lifting of all pandemic restrictions from today. The government of President Pedro Castillo said the state of emergency would end, but recommended the continued use of masks in public.